I'm telling you, you got to save me from the wrath to come. <laughs> All right, Romans 6. Romans 6. I thought it would be an appropriate text for Father's Day to continue discussing what it means to be practically holy. Um, as you're turning to Romans 6 this week, I... I uh, First of all, before I get on to my thought with James 125, you're not going there, go to Romans 6. I just want to say that since the choir is not singing because they're on summer break, I just want to tell you, in all my years of being the pastor, when the choir sings up here, you guys sing louder, right? But now that the choir's not here, your volume is the greatest I've heard it ever. Uh, so keep that up. Keep that up. When the choir comes back in the fall... Uh, our ears should be ringing uh, when we're done singing, and uh, it's a great blessing. I often quote James 1.25, whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this man, this person will be what? Blessed in their deed. Think about that. In our 21st century culture, what does it mean to be blessed? It means to be given something to be benefited by, it's a little bit of pragmatic reciprocity. If I do this, then I'm going to get this. But James 1.25, understood within its context, has a lot of application to Romans 6. When you understand the word of God, when you understand doctrine, and you apply it, what it means to be blessed in your deed is just simply to know the operation of the grace of God in your life, right? to spiritually apply truth in your daily decision-making and in your walk so that day by day you're molded more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be blessed in your deed. You're being, you're being aided by the grace of God to do something in your life that you cannot do without the grace of God. And the grace of God is operable in your life in the doing Christ, God through Christ has done all that he can do for us. When we own him as our Lord and Savior, right, that same grace that saved us compels us to be sanctified and to become more like the character of our Savior each and every day. We've divided this chapter six into two sections based on two questions. I'm not gonna rehearse those. Uh, one found in the first few verses of the chapter, the other found in verse 15. Those two sections have three prominent verbs. Right? Remember, we're talking about in, in chapter 6 and 7, the holiness of God's people, practically uh, exuding the character of God, demonstrating the character of God in our daily living. There are, these two sections have three prominent verbs. No, right? no, consider, and present. Know, consider, and present. The word know or a form of it's found multiple times in verses one to 10, the word consider in verse 11, and in verses 12 and following, we find a form of the word present, I believe five more times. Five more times, we'll highlight those this morning. Know, consider, and present. So we've taken these two sections, divided them, according to these three prominent verbs, and we've given these three prominent verbs uh, uh, to a, an alliterative outline, right? Comprehend, consider, and conform. Comprehend for no, 
consider, as it says in the text, and then for present, the word conform. And what we did, we even gave some practical analogy to each one of those three verbs given in that alliterative outline. It's this. Right. Uh, to know or to comprehend has to do with what our mind needs to know, what, what needs to understand. What our mind needs to understand. Right. Consider is a verb that pertains to our heart. What our mind knows means nothing unless it reaches our heart. And to conform has to do with our will. Has to do with our will. So again, you think about James 1.25, hearing the word of God, being a faithful, not just listener, but hearer, but then doer, you'll be blessed in your deed. The blessing in your deed is the ability we have because of what we know that's convinced our hearts, the ability that we have to conform, to do. The blessing is in the doing. Because in the doing of the doctrine, we find great protection and great joy. Right? We'll finish this morning's sermon with a quote that goes something like this. The same amount of energy that we gave to living in sin before we knew Christ is the exact same amount of energy that we need to give to living for Christ after we're born again. Think about it that way. Right? And that's all underpinned by the transformational grace of God at salvation, and then this transformational grace that teaches us practically how to live. And at some point in our Christian life, we're all going to be able to grow to that point not all of us may be there now, but you will be growing there if you're governed by the Spirit of God, continually being saturated by the Word of God. You'll grow to the point where you're giving just as much energy to living for Christ as you did before you were saved or living for sin. So understanding that little rehearsal of our main points, uh, let's move on beyond what we've comprehended in relationship to the doctrine of the baptism of the Spirit. If you weren't here last week, you can go back and watch that recording on our website uh, where we rehearsed what the doctrine of the baptism of the Spirit is. And uh, that's what we need to know. We need to know that doctrine, uh, to know how to appropriate that doctrine in our lives. I'll just give a brief definition of it and then we'll move on to our second point. The baptism of the Holy Spirit may be defined as that work whereby the Spirit of God places the believer into union with Christ and into union with other believers in the body of Christ at the moment of their salvation. This is something God did for you, you did not do for yourself the moment that you're born again and he did it for all believers. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was preached by John the Baptist and by Jesus before he ascended to heaven. For John baptized with water in Acts chapter one and verse five, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The promise was fulfilled in the day of Pentecost in Acts two, and for the first time people were permanently indwelt by the Spirit of God and the church began. Each saint born again brought into union with Jesus Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not gonna go ahead and, again, re-explain all those uh, spiritual and practical benefits of spirit baptism. You do that on your own, but remember, you have to know that doctrine. You have to comprehend that doctrine. You see, that's one of those lofty doctrines that, that uh, I don't know that I'll ever understand. 
Well, if we're going to get to the blessed in your deed part, if we're going to get to the point where you're going to be able to live out doctrine, you got to know the doctrine. So however long it takes for you to comprehend and understand what the baptism of the Spirit is, you need to know that. Or, gentlemen, fathers, you will not be able to be the spiritual leader of your families. Men have to embrace and know doctrine. All right? So this is meat for sure. A morsel of meat, if you will. But necessary to know if we're going to be able to next consider what we need to do. So as we continue on in Romans chapter 6, uh, let's look at verse 11 for our second point. We understand what we need to comprehend. This is what we need to consider. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. The form of this word consider is used some 41 times in the New Testament. 19, almost half of those times, this word is used in the book of Romans by the Apostle Paul. Right? It simply and literally means to put to one's account. To consider this to be a reality. Uh, it's kind of a self-deposit. God has deposited us, he's declared us to be righteous in Jesus Christ. Now this is our responsibility. We, we need to make this deposit in our lives. We need to consider this to be true. Again, remember, we don't ask for the baptism of the Spirit because all people are given the baptism of the Spirit when they're born again. Everything that we have Everything that God's given Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ is now ours. So we need to take the reality of what that is and just incorporate that into our daily living. Oftentimes, uh, you and I, as we shepherd people, will come across people uh, that say something like this. Um, I don't feel like I have the ability to quit the practice of a particular vice or sin in my life. And, and folks, uh, I understand that to be sure. Um, there's no difference in my fallen nature compared to your fallen nature. I understand what it means to, to grow weary in well-doing. Right? Well, while we understand that we don't feel in ourselves we have the ability to quit, we, we cannot ask for the ability to quit a sin. Oftentimes people will be found saying this, and you and I have both been found saying this, would you pray for me, I need to stop this in my life. Would you pray for me, I have this habit and it needs to go. Pray for me that I would quit. Now I understand the heart behind that, and, and certainly there's some noble aspirations behind that request, but if we understand the context of what Paul's saying here in Romans 6, uh, there is no call for prayer in this chapter. There's no call for prayer. The victory over sin for a believer is not, in this context, through prayer. It's through understanding doctrine and reckoning that doctrine to be true on our own personal behalf. 
It's in the comprehension and then in you deciding that your heart is going to do something with this truth. So what I hopefully graciously have learned to say in response to someone that says, Pastor, I have this, I have this issue with pornography in my life. I have this issue with alcohol or nicotine in my life. Who, who say, please pray for me. Uh, I say, you know what? I'm not going to pray that God will give you victory over that sin. I'm going to pray that you understand this truth. I'm going to pray that you understand God's capable grace that saved you miraculously is able to transform your practical area of life right here. I'm going to pray that you decide to take what God's already done and do it. And by the way, we're going to back that up with a whole lot of love and a whole lot of spiritual companionship and layers of protection and discipleship to spiritually nurse you along the way. Now folks, now you gotta remember, Paul's writing this to a group of Roman believers and a whole book he doesn't level one criticism against them. He's not writing to people who are struggling with an unconfessed sin in their life. He's writing to a group of people who have embraced the doctrine of justification and therefore it has helped them practically in the way they live holy. This is given to them by way of reminder. So think about that. Again, within the context of the book of Romans, think about Paul writing to a church where there's not any saint struggling with an habitual sin in their life at all. There's not a saint in the church that's struggling with an unconfessed sin in their life. So apparently, this is possible. It doesn't mean that we're not gonna be tempted by sin or fall to sin periodically, but to be writing to a church where people understand this doctrine so clearly and so well that there's not one person habitually falling to the same sin. Um, That was meant to be for your encouragement, but it got really quiet in here, so hopefully I said that, hopefully I said that in a nice way. Um, I want you to be encouraged by that. That's the capability of God's grace, isn't it? How wonderful that would be. And so if we pray that God would give us release from this sin and it doesn't happen, is it God's fault? None of us would ever say that. Because of James 1, let no man say when he's tempted, I am tempted of God. But he's led away of his what? his own lust and entice. And so when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And when sin has its way, it brings forth death. So that's on us, right? So is Romans 6. We've got to know the doctrine. Mentally, spiritually, our heart needs to embrace it. And then we need to do something with it. We need to do something with this. One author said in relationship to understanding what it means to be dead to sin, he says, God does not command us to be dead to sin. He tells us that we already are dead to sin. And then tells us to act on it. Even if you don't act on it, the facts never change. Good living does pour forth from comprehending good doctrine. And many times, and you may be newer to Grace Church, or maybe never understood the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but 
The more you know this doctrine, I think the more you'll be able to apply it and the, the less and less you'll be dominated by a pattern of sin or even one particular sin uh, in your life. Right? Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Reckon yourselves. You already are. You already are. Now, live like you're alive unto God. Pastor Tim, I so want to, and you will, the more you familiarize yourself with the doctrine of verses one through 10. You will. Be encouraged by that. Keep learning. Keep growing. All right. And again, not to um, discourage any of you, but to encourage some of you that, that you know, the less you avail yourself to sound teaching and doctrine, you can plan to struggle more. Okay? Um, that's why we encourage you to walk with the Lord on your own. That's why we try to get you to study the Word of God with somebody else. That's why we encourage you to Bible study hours, morning services, evening services, uh, right? T3 classes, Bible Institute classes. This is why we do this, folks. It's not to set up an institution of learning. All right, I'll leave that to the schools. We're thankful for our good Christian schools. I'll leave that to them. The reason for our learning is in the living. It's in the living. Okay. And when we're layered with this type of learning, we should be as a church in time, a church that is no longer struggling habitually. There's a pattern of sin or even in one particular sin and that should happen to the individual over time. I know it takes time. Um, but you keep growing, and you'll find yourself to be, know what it means, at the end of James 1.25, to be blessed in your deed. Think about this. Maybe this would help you. Um, civil war is over. Slaves are freed. Could you imagine being a slave born into slavery? That's all you've known. Ownership by one master. Could you imagine being 50, 60 years old, the war is over, the Emancipation Proclamation is decreed, and one morning, one night you go to bed a slave, and the next morning you wake up, and your master can't tell you a blooming thing what to do anymore. And he says, you know what? Get off my property. You're on your own now. You're free. That would come with some uh, concern. Do I trust him? <laughs> right? If I walk out down the path onto the front road, am I going to get whipped? Right? Is this real? And then I see other people gathering on the road, kind of looking around before they leave, making sure it's true, and they see other slaves coming, former slaves coming to the road. Walking down the road together? Well, now we've got to find a place to live. Now we've got to find some food to eat. Right? We're free. We're to make some of our own decisions. Right? Let's say 10 years later, they've established a local community of former slaves. They've begun their own inner workings of their own commerce, providing for themselves food, clothing, shelter. Right? Uh, do you think that those slaves... 
in the previous decade didn't have some mornings where they woke up still thinking they were a slave? Did you ever wake up in a hotel room thinking you were at home? You even got out of bed starting to make your way to the bathroom in the middle of the night only to run into a wall that's not supposed to be there because it's not your home? I would, imagine, I would imagine over a course of a decade and even longer that some of these former slaves would have to reckon themselves free. This isn't changing. I'm not going back into slavery. I've been declared free. I can't change that. It's been done for me. Now I'm going to reckon myself free. Amen. Over and over and over and over. And the farther they get away from the pronouncement of that freedom, the more they become used to living in the joy of true freedom. Haunted periodically for sure. Maybe taking off a shirt and seeing in a mirror the scars that reminded them of their former slavery. But in their mind saying, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. Wow. I've got kids, I've got grandkids now who were born in freedom. Wow. It does take some mental exercise, doesn't it? Consider yourself free. And it's the same way spiritually, friends. The baptism of the Spirit ensured your freedom. Now, consider yourself free. You're not talking yourself into freedom, you're free. <laughs> you're not trying to... Gather up some emotion to convince yourself you're free. You're free. You don't have to go back and live in bondage anymore. You don't have to, to wear the shackles of slavery anymore. You don't have to undergo the punishment of your former slavery anymore. You're free. Now live that way. Reckon, consider, reckon, consider. And that's the grammar of the verb here. Regularly consider yourselves dead to sin. So it's going to take a mental exercise. We've got to gird up the loins of our mind and do this as often as we possibly can, sometimes multiple times a day. If we're struggling, I'm free. I'm free. No. I'm free. No. Don't pray for it. Reckon yourselves free. Okay? Now conform. The father of American poetry, Walt Whitman, said this. This is what you shall do. Re-examine all that you've been told at school, at home, and at church, or in any book. Dismiss whatever insults your own soul, and your very flesh shall become a great poem. Now, I understand that there may be some things at school or home or church that that uh, necessarily insult our souls in a way that's wrong. But when we get to this third point, conform, this is something you're going to hear at church that may insult your soul. And I'm asking you, don't dismiss it so that you can go create your own poem for your own soul. Don't dismiss it. Conform. Now remember, this is not where we started. We started with comprehend. We started with the mind. And then we went to the heart, consider. 
The practice is only as successful as what we know in our mind and we're willing to practice in our heart. The word present here, look with me at verses 12 and 13. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. The word present or form of this word, you're going to find three more times in the rest of chapter six as we continue on this morning, right? you'll find it very interesting that the next three times that this word or a form of this word is used, it's going to be used in relationship to comparing slavery to sin before we're saved and slavery to obedience and righteousness after we're saved. In other words, you'll see, as we've already read in previous weeks, all right, now you're going to present yourselves alive unto righteousness and no longer present yourselves as a slave to sin. And he's going to say that three different ways in the rest of the verses, but the first two ways that's mentioned here we've already read. And let's review those again just for a moment. Verse 13, and do not go on presenting. The grammar there means uh, that, that you are going to again cognitively make this a mental discipline. Daily you are going to say, I am not going to take the capabilities that God's given me and use them as instruments for sinful purposes. And that's going to be a daily thing, but look how the grammar changes in the second time this word is used within the context. Middle of verse 13, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Now, I think the grammar of verses 12 and 13 is, is, is here, and it's, it's likened to the first two, the, the, quest, the two major questions that divide the text into two sections. Should I go on sinning, Romans 6, 1 and 2, should I go on sinning, should I make it a pattern of my sin, of my life to sin, and Paul says, of course, God forbid, but this is what you need to know if it's not gonna be a pattern. And then verse 15, should I even sin? Should I even let, well, if I'm not gonna make it a pattern of sinning multiple ways, should I even let one sin dominate my life? And of course his answer is the same, God forbid. And then he uses the analogy that we're gonna see here in a little bit uh, about slavery. Right? The word present here or don't go on presenting, but present yourselves is the same kind of idea. The believer, because of what we've been given in Jesus Christ, not only his righteousness, but because of baptism into Christ, his holiness, not only positionally, but practically, we're able to avoid both the pattern of sin and even the struggle over one particular sin. Now, you see this word, instruments, do you remember reading that? Do not go on presenting the members of your body. The King James Bible, I believe, says instruments. The members of your body as sin and the righteousness. But present yourselves alive to God from the dead and your, what? Members as instruments of righteousness unto God. 
It's very interesting here. If our president, who loves to tweet apparently, uh, uh, tomorrow morning you woke up and he had a tweet on there is that while you were sleeping, I donated all of our military weapons to the dictator of North Korea. So you're on your own, right? That would shock you, wouldn't it? We'd be a little disappointed. Now we know that's never gonna happen. But I use that illustration that sounds extreme to let you know that what Paul is thinking of here in his mind is something very extreme. For someone who's been baptized by the Holy Spirit, someone who's embraced the, uh, the desire in their heart to consider that doctrine real for themselves, it's absolutely absurd for you any longer to present your capabilities, your instruments, your members as, as uh, instruments unto sin. It's that absurd. So Pastor Tim, I don't get that. I don't understand that. This is all radically confusing to me. I understand, well, you, you just may need to be born again. And even though you know a lot about Christ, you may not know him, but if you know Christ and you're growing in your understanding of the scriptures, increasingly, maybe you've been saved for a little bit or a lot bit, I don't know, but the more you know this doctrine and you, it's warm in your heart, You'll begin to find out you'll never be sinless, but you should be sinning less and less. Why? Because it becomes absurd, absurd for you to offer your capabilities unto sinful purposes. Okay? That's it. I sat with a friend of mine this week who had a very dear seminary friend of his, and we've heard these stories over and over, right? Who is a pastor of a church who had an affair with another lady in the church. This pastor was in his mid to late 40s and the lady he had an affair with was in her early 20s and was newly married with two children. Blew the church apart, right? And we gasp, we go, ah. We say, yes, what? Really? That's what? That's absurd. How does a believer get there? Well, if, 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 capital if, he's a believer, somewhere along the line, he himself decided that he was going to walk away from saturating himself with doctrine. And if he was availing himself to hearing it and even teaching it because he was a pastor, he no longer considered that doctrine true and real for himself. It never got to his heart because somewhere along the line, he started thinking it was natural and normal to present his capabilities to sinful purposes. Okay. We would all call that foolish. But my friends, I understand that it's the degree of the foolishness comes with the position, I understand, in the church. But what Paul's saying here, he's not speaking to pastors in Romans 6. He's speaking to saints. He's saying, it is no less absurd for you to take your capabilities and lend them to sinful purposes, okay? Notice the promise that we're given in verse 14. If we're going to 
present our members properly, sin shall not be master over you, for you are no longer under law, but under grace. Wouldn't that be cool? Sin no longer will be what? Your despot will no longer be your master, will no longer be calling the shots in your life. It's a great little cross-reference of Galatians 5, right? If you walk in the spirit, you will not gratify the lusts of the flesh, right? But if you sow to the flesh, you sow to the wind, you'll reap the whirlwind, okay? Great promises here for us to be sure. So if this offends you, if this insults you, I would encourage you not to dismiss it but to embrace this truth so that you might know what it means to be blessed in your deed. Now, what we'll notice in the rest of the text as we conclude is that the word slave or a form of it is used eight more times. It's used eight times in the text in two different ways. Before we knew Christ, we were slaves to sin after we know Christ, we are now slaves to obedience. And he adds a word here that he didn't add when earlier when talking about the baptism of the Spirit. Or even talking about justification, being declared righteousness in Christ. He always talked about righteousness. We have been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When you're baptized into Jesus Christ, you're positionally given his righteousness and his holiness, positionally and practically, but now he adds a word in the book of Romans that gives some hands and feet to this doctrine, the word obedience. So really in verses one to 14, we have the indicative for those of you that know grammar. <laughs> and, and, but in verses 15 to 23, we have the imperative. This is what God did for you in Jesus Christ. Now, this is what you get to do underpinned by that divine help, that grace. It's really, really neat to see. But as you look at verses 15 to 23, verse 19, for those of you that like to tear apart scripture, is really the epicenter of this uh, section of verses 15 to 23. What does verse 19 say? I am speaking in human terms, Speaking of slavery, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in what? There it is. You'll see that same phrase resulting in sanctification in verse 22. In the last line of that verse depending on your version, right? Resulting in, so this presenting, we already know, it's absurd, but the way you presented your members to sin, now we're presenting them to righteousness, and that's given to us as a human illustration to understand some various things. So, I'm going to finish this sermon by asking a few questions that might be running through your mind as a new believer, or maybe even older believer, I'm gonna ask a few questions and we're going to pretend that these were questions that the Roman believers would have been asking Paul and then he answers those questions with some scripture. So we're gonna volley here a little bit with some questions and some answers. Understanding verse 19 is the epicenter, verses 15 to 23. Let's go back up now and let's look at some of these other verses and explanation of this point of what does it mean to conform? What does it mean to conform? So the question might be asked, how is this reality to be understood in our lives? 
Well, the answer is given in verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you what? You became. Powerful world their word became. It became your nature. You became not righteous, you became obedient. You took that righteousness that was given to you in Jesus Christ and you decided to do it. You became obedient from the heart. Remember, consider? That's the heart issue. And now we're in the conform issue. This is the, this is the doing, this is the will. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now, okay, a Roman believer may have asked, could you explain that a little further for the sake of clarification? Well, verse 20. Well, when you were slaves to sin, you were freed in regard to righteousness. Okay? So what you're saying is there, Paul, that before I was saved, I had no desire to be free. Right. You had no desire to be free. In other words, you were free, but you were only free from wanting to do righteousness. You couldn't. It's not that you wouldn't. You couldn't. Because you didn't have the nature of Christ in you. All right. Okay, well, Paul, I get what you're saying, but it wasn't really that bad. Or I wasn't really that bad before I was saved. I mean, I needed to get saved, and I did, but... Was my formal life really that bad? Verse 21. Therefore, what benefit were you in deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is what? Death. Don't forget, regardless of the degree of your sin, the outcome of the degree of any sin is death. So yes. Yes, you were that bad. Right? And you did need Christ. All right, Paul, can I ask a follow-up question? Well, sure. Wow, that's a sober reminder you just gave us, Paul. Thank you for that. Now, what are, what are my new opportunities? Can you rehearse those again? Well, sure. Verse 22. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. And the outcome of that is not death, but what? Eternal life. Okay, so in Christ, you, you have already been made perfect in him. You have already been given power over sin because you have been united with Christ. And now you're telling me, Paul, that my end is already established. Yes, your end is already established. In life, we all love processes, don't we? We all love to have meetings that have, that have means to an end. But what Paul's saying is in Jesus Christ, when you've been a, made a slave to obedience and righteousness, your end is already secured. You don't have to work for that end. You already have it. Amen. That's eternal life in Jesus Christ. And remember, that happened back at your conversion. The end's already secured. Now, live like it is. Live like it is. All right. Can I ask another question, Paul? Well, sure. Thank you for what you've given to us. So, 
As for my friend who professes that he got saved when I did, but he kind of never changed. I mean, he came to church for a few weeks, but he's back out there drinking, sleeping around, clubbing, and living the life. What about him? Verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because any healthy saint is always going to be concerned for the professing saint who's not living a healthy lifestyle. And maybe they need a sober reminder. Maybe all that they heard got here, but never got here. Okay? And we don't treat them harshly, but lovingly come alongside them for a reminder. I read a quote not long ago. It went like this. You cannot blend in when you were born to stand out. You cannot blend in when you were born to stand out. Chapter 6 is about holiness. It's about standing out for the character of God. And we're only able to do that because of divine help from heaven, his grace. We've grasped this doctrine, although we could have a whole class just on the baptism of the Spirit We've grasped it as much as we can. We've explained how this truth is understood in the heart. We've even taken time to explain how, how to willfully appropriate this doctrine in the way that we live in this world. Now we have the responsibility to live in the light of this passage. As we stated earlier, to not only understand the indicative, but to move to our imperative. One author said, the enjoyment of the Christian life is based in our obedience by the grace of God to the truth of the word of God. The enjoyment of the Christian life is based in our obedience by the grace of God to the truth of the word of God. So Paul is strongly suggesting here, one final quote that I'll give you to kind of settle and drive things home as we conclude this morning. Paul is strongly suggesting here that our commitment to serve righteousness now that we are saved should be just as strong as our commitment was to serve sin before we were saved. You cannot blend in when you were born to stand out. Let's pray together.